Hi, everybody. We're currently on episode two of Common Ground, and I'm really excited to bring you our guest this time, that being Tapa Ghosh. Tapa and I kind of inhabit the same ecosystem of young, young successful people, where it's like the same 1,000 people that all know each other. And I have the reputation of being the humanities guy, and Tapa's kind of the STEM guy. And I can say without exaggeration, he is one of the smartest young guys in STEM around today. And we're going to talk about all sorts of fascinating topics. And he's currently building a company that is about trying to bring chip manufacturing back to America instead of where it's currently based out of Taiwan. And so I'm really excited to bring this new episode for us all. And also excited to have my co-host David Hamilton from the America's Future series on board as well. Great to be here with you, Richard. This is great. Tapa, it's great to meet you. I've heard a lot of great things about you, and I want to hear uh, everything you're doing and uh, get your thoughts on all these interesting topics that Rudyard would like to chat with you about. Yeah, I mean, it's an awesome introduction. Um, I'll try to live up to it. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I guess I'll give sort of an overview about what I'm working on, what I'm interested in. So, essentially, what we are doing at a high level is essentially saying that, um, you know, can we revolutionize the entirety of the chip manufacturing industry today? And the way that we're doing that actually boils down to a very, very simple thing, which is that manufacturing chips isn't actually hard. The hard part isn't making one or two transistors in a lab. The hard part is that you got to make 10 billion transistors on a chip and you have to get them all right. And that is really hard. And so essentially what we do instead is we design computer chips to be fault tolerant so that we can have large numbers of manufacturing defects and the chip, the design can still work. And, you know, in the short term, that's interesting because you can take advancing silicon technology today and sort of turbocharge it. But in the long run, it's extremely exciting for me personally, because, you know, the new stuff, the really exotic stuff, like something like graphene or new materials, 3D transistors, whatever, that stuff really takes a really long time to go from the lab to actual real chips if at all, because we don't understand how to make, um, you know, 10 billion transistors perfectly with them, as well as we do with silicon and today's technology, right? And so our goal in the long run is, is to basically take all the stuff that exists in the lab today, and get them into real working chips. And yeah, so that's what I'm working on in a nutshell. One of the interesting points you told me about before, Tapa, is that... Mm -hmm. Basically, we have to re-nationalize chip manufacturing because without those chips, our modern civilization is doomed. China invades Taiwan. They can cut us off. And one of the very interesting points you brought to me is that if you want to establish a technological sector in a society, it's not effective to try to compete against the older sector on its terms. And what you're currently trying to do is establish a revolution in ship technologies that we Americans can have an advantage over the Taiwanese in order to renationalize it. Yeah, I think that's pretty true. Like, I think that, you know, if you try to go in and compete in the way that TSMC does it today, you know, say, let's make another foundry yeah. that basically is going to, you know, fab chips for everyone the same way, you're probably going to, it's get, you know, it's like walking into a machine gun nest, right? You're probably going to get cut down. Yeah. <laughs> Got to go for a flank. Yeah, exactly. Right. You got to do something different. And I think like what's interesting is in many ways, new technologies or approaches start out as being inferior in some axes to the incumbent technology. Right. Uh, you know, TSMC itself started out behind Intel. Right. They made worse chips. They made chips for basically toys and microcontrollers. And then over time, basically advanced and overtook Intel due to having more volume, due to not having as intensive a yield problem. Um, and, you know, the same is true for, you know, the history of most computing technologies and chips themselves, right? Like yeah. the microprocessor was inferior to the multi-chip CPUs or the MOSFET was inferior to the bipolar transistor and speed. And so, but over time it gets better. And yeah, to me, I think that's an underrated aspect of it, right? Where um, in the modern world, we sort of think of te technological improvements as strictly better and better and better, um, which isn't often the case. Okay, so Tapa... If I may, Richard, you know, I have a bit of a background in manufacturing. I was involved in the creation of Lean Six Sigma, which you may know about, right? And um, that's all about incremental improvement, typically. You know, Lean being an efficiency notion, uh, Six Sigma being a process improvement and a defect prevention notion. So when I hear you start talking about defects, uh, that perks my ears up. And I really like the idea of leaping past the standard process if you're not able to compete on that uh, 
impact on that front, create a new front. And this idea of having fault tolerant chips where maybe your um, design specs, your manufacturing specs don't have to be as good because the, um, the, uh, the chips themselves are more forgiving is a very interesting idea. And it leapfrogs into another way. So we don't have, I'm not going to compete with you on the old war. I'm going to compete with you on a new front. And I really love that. But I am also curious about, so what, what is it about this new manufacturing approach or these, the design of the chips that makes them fault tolerant? I'm kind of curious about that. And then secondly, um, what do we need to do to enable an organization, a company like yours, to actually produce those in mass quantities, right? We have to be able to produce at, at, at scale, large scale, cheaply, um, so that we can be um, not only competitive, but independent from, this is Rudyard's point, we have to be independent from both Taiwan and China on these sorts of things and, and reshore this capability back to the United States. So what it is about the um, design that makes them tolerant and two, what do you need to do? What do you need to have in order to be able to onshore this capability? Curious about those two things. Yeah. So let me answer the first one first, which is basically, you know, what makes them fall tolerant. And I think basically the TLDR of this is that we've moved from an era in which you'd have very large cores like in CPUs, and you may, may have a couple of them or, you know, four or six of them on die to essentially this era where we have thousands and tens of thousands of small chips. Sorry, it's not chip small cores on a chip that works on some parallel workload right whether it's ai or you know cfd or something like that and the shift at a high level you know it's literally as simple as we have we used to have a few big cores now we have lots of small cores that look the same can we basically um, if we have a few of the small cores go out well they all look the same right so could we basically swap them out and reroute around those defective cores in some way and it turns out that that's a pretty well-known technique in the chip industry today. Um, it's called a core binning, right? So if you have a six-core part from Intel, there's a good chance it was an eight-core part where they turned off two of the cores, right? And where it gets interesting, though, is that when you take it from the regime of a few cores to many, many small cores, um, you can tolerate way, way more um, in the way of defects because the cores are much smaller. But in order to actually make that paradigm work, you need to do two things. Number one, today, most of the chip area isn't redundant, right? So you have parts of the chip that are redundant and you can add redundancy, uh, but you don't have it for the entirety of the chip, right? And normally you don't care because the yields have been good enough so far historically that that's enough, right? You say, okay, architects make their CPU architecture. We add in redundancy once that's done and you ship it off to the manufacturing folks and they have to reach good enough yield. And that sort of abstraction basically works. And what we're basically doing is we're saying that when I sit down to architect, when I actually create my architecture, can I make defect tolerance as a first order priority, right? And what are the implications for that for the, you know, from software model, for the hardware, um, and all of these things, right? And so essentially, that's really the secret sauce, if you will, of what we do. Um, so that's number one. The second part of it is essentially... When it comes to, you know, what does it take to actually fab these in the United States in large quantities? And, you know, the answer to that is just unfortunately, American capital markets in general are very adversarial. They basically just don't like uh, capital intensive projects, right? Even if they get good returns, which really makes no sense, but they just don't like it, right? And so in chips, particularly, it requires like 10 to $50 billion to actually create a leading edge fab, uh, fab with its process today, right? And um, that just is a non-starter in today's capital market. So what we're starting is we're, we're starting with pa partnering with existing foundries like TSMC, Intel, Samsung, and so forth, and basically working with them to manufacture um, our chips, but giving them a huge advantage by being able to adopt everything that's in their R&D pipeline much faster. In the long run, we do want to really start to fab some of the stuff in the United States. And the bottleneck there, again, is just capital, right? Like if you look at even the existing American industrial super majors, if you will, like Boeing or Intel, you know, even for these guys, the bottleneck for them is capital, right? Because if, they, if Boeing goes and says, hey, we need to make a new clean sheet design um, for an airplane and the capital market's like, no, we won't, you know, we need $20 billion for that. And capital markets basically say, no, that's way too expensive. Reduce your CapEx. And then Boeing's strategy, I guess, then is to fall a few percent behind Airbus every year in market share until they die. 
right? And so it's no, so it's like Boeing CEO said like no clean sheet until 2050 or something or 2035, which is it's like it's insane. You're getting destroyed by Airbus in every market. So I think that's like the big big aspect of it, right? Well, that's a great thing that, that is pervasive, right? <clears throat> so for example, Warren Buffett got out of textiles with Bershka Hathaway many, many years ago because it was so capital intensive, decided to invest in Coca-Cola, which was not capital intensive, et cetera, and had huge margins, et cetera. And when we look at software, you know, um, that's the favorite of Silicon Valley. It's funny that they're called Silicon Valley, but they love software because you make it pretty cheaply and sell it a billion times, right? You, you, it, the cost, of, and they, they don't like capital intensive um, uh, investments. Whereas, I'm sorry, nations like China, Taiwan, et cetera, the French, for example, their bus have said, this is strategic to us. And so we will make that big investment. Whereas an individual investor will say, I'm not America. I'm not China. I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, Russia or whatever. So I'm not going to make huge investments and things like that because I'm only thinking about my short term, you know, every quarter profits, et cetera. Right. We don't profit, let's say, out of Afghanistan, taking out um uh, strategic uh, deposits, copper and other things like that out of that, because we can't afford to. Our companies say, I'm not going to build the railroads to go up into the mountains to get those things. My friend is doing sea. that, actually. I have a friend who is operating a gold mine in Afghanistan. Okay. That's a huge investment, right? And we want a certain rate of return. The Chinese said, we don't care what rate of return we make. We just want the copper, the gold, the tungsten, the whatever, right? So this is a struggle you face. So this has to become an issue of national importance. It's a strategic national interest. And so I think what you're saying is not only do we need to count on the investor, the, 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 uh, the capital markets, but this has to become something that we say as a nation, we're, we're going to put a man on the moon. We're going to have chips here in America again because they're strategically vital. It, it, am I getting close to what you're saying? Yeah. <clears throat> so interestingly enough, I would actually kind of disagree in the sense that I think there is an aspect of national strategic importance to it. But, you know, part of it is also just like the returns are good. It's just that. In order to get those returns, you need a large sum of money up front, right? And, and a patient investor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You need a patient investor and you need long-term timelines. And instead, you get it, you know, it's like so modern software companies aren't CapEx, like, aren't CapEx light at all. It's like, you know, if you look at a company oh. like FTX, it's like, you know, that company took a lot of capital and didn't return a lot of it back to investors, right? And so, you know, or like Instacart or Uber or something, it's like, you know, these companies are great. But, you know, they also don't make money and also require large sums of capital. I think part of it is because my, my sense is that this is partly cultural in the sense that it's partly just American investors just do not like capital intensive projects, period, like regardless of the returns. Um, and I'm not really sure why. Right. But th that just seems to be how it is. Uh, the second aspect is I think there is definitely an aspect where it's almost like leaving something to the imagination where it's like if you invest in Uber or something, you can sort of pretend that you're going to get great returns on that company, even if it turns out that in 10 or 20 years, you actually get very bad returns, but you can sort of pretend that these companies will have very good returns, right? Like if you look at- Because there's a capital, dream, there's sort of a fantasy dream around those? Yeah. I mean, if you look at venture capital as an industry, I mean, most of it does not do very well at all, right? It's really just the top decel that does very well against the rest of the market. Everyone else really outperforms even, you know, your average index fund. Um, and yeah, and not too uncorrelated from the S&P or something either, right? So um, yeah, I mean, it's like, I think a lot of it is just like, at the end of the day, people like to think, I think investors are driven by returns, but they're really more driven by what you can tell someone at a cocktail party, what they can tell their LPs um, and, you know, what, what, what's sexy when it, They would be very insulted by you saying this, but there's probably a great deal of truth to this, right? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like it's the same. I'm not an irrational why... investor. I, I do everything for the bottom line and I'm practical and I'm, you know, I'm a futuristic thinking, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm a visionary. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, the number of times I've seen like a venture capital fund be like, we back like breakthrough founders or something. And if you'll talk to them, they'll be like, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, a good example of this might be the hype around quantum computing. Right. And it's like, um. First of all, I think it's cool that there is capital going into those areas, but at the end of the day, these investors have no idea what they're investing in whatsoever. And it really seems like five or so years back, they just randomly elected quantum computing as an area where we're going to put in a bunch of money. And they do. And it's like, I've talked, I've spoken to you know partners. Well, they all like flunk quantum one. physics in, in college anyway, right? <laughs> they can't explain quantum physics anyway, right? 
a lot of people can't. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, I think in general they have no idea about the maturity of these companies in terms of their technology there, and um, yeah, I mean they're just basically it, it, it's very hype driven, right? And so I think when you have these sorts of hype cycles, it's easy to pretend like there's good returns in Uber or something. Or if you actually look at it, probably not, depending on where you invest in the life cycle of that company. It, um, I mean, there's a couple things I want to throw in, but the first is I think it's completely nuts that like the U.S. government isn't all over what you're doing because the U.S. government has a, has a lot of money to throw around, and it also has a large vested interest in the American economy continuing to function under the pretty likely circumstance China attacks Taiwan. Um, and I mean, Tapa, we're both adjacent to the Silicon Valley world. And I just, it, I see the stuff that gets invested in. And it, it's also insane. You have people invest in, or it was the case until like a year and a half ago, where I think you'd see people get millions of dollars for India that makes no sense. And then just because it's hype driven and it's, it, it just speaks to bubble. And we had a, a bubble in the tech economy pretty recently but there's just so much foolishness going around driven off VCs acting like herds of cattle that are all going after the same water source. What would Warren Buffett say about that? Right. You know, of course he says the patient investor, you know, beats the impatient investor every time, <clears throat> but you know, the VC game is a little different and I'll, I'll cut them a little bit of slack. I mean, they are trying to hit one out of 10, one out of seven, whatever. They know that most of the investments they're going to make it fail, but that's why they also want a hundred to one, a 200 to one return on their investment, which is maybe a little impractical, but okay. Good luck if you can get it, I would say, right? Um, back to Rudyard's point about this being strategic. I'd like to not end up going to war with China. I, I'm kind of big on that. I'm also big on um, reducing our motivation to do that. I mean, right now we will protect uh, Taiwan for a couple of reasons. One, we just don't want the Chinese taking over the world, generally speaking, right? That, that, that would be a bad day for everybody, right? I don't want to be absorbed by the Borg like in Star Trek, right? <clears throat> you will be assimilated, that kind of stuff. Uh, but secondly, because it's strategically vital to us, right? We're in a war over, you know, really kind of in a war with Russia right now in Central Europe, even though Central Europe is the third most important region to us in the world. China and the, and the Far East are more important. The Middle East is more important because of oil. But yet we're pouring all this blood, sweat and tears, mostly money, et cetera. And we're perpetuating this war in an area that's not that critical to the United States strategically. Ukraine produces a lot of wheat and a few strategic metals. But by, but it, it's also not, you know, the most perfect country in the world either. Yet we're way behind it only because we're trying to fight the Russians. Right. OK. It's not that strategic. Taiwan is vitally important to our way of life. We can't survive without those chips. So if we could survive without those chips, this would become less important to us. So you're taking away the impetus. If we could do what you're talking about, which is, you know, uh, become independent, just like we want to become independent on energy. If we could become independent on chip manufacturing, et cetera, which is vital to our way of life and our entire economy, then the outcome of that would be we would care less about Taiwan. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. I think it'd be a good thing overall. We still need to care about China trying to take over the world like Pinky and the Brain. You know, they wake up every morning trying to figure out how to take over the world, right? Um, well, we have to do that. But this is an elegant solution. And what I'd like to do, one, is invite you back to come one of our summits. We have national security summits where we get prominent people. And, and, and Rudyard participated in one not long ago at South by Southwest. I would like for you maybe to have a conversation. And I'll put you in front of some people with the State Department, the Department of Defense, DARPA, whoever you tell me. Because I think people need to hear this. And I need to hear for some, I think only the young people can save us. We've been doing the same thing over and over again, expecting uh, different results. Why are we fighting the Russians? Yeah. So the reason I care about Rudyard and what he does, et cetera, and the people that he, he talks to, you guys are the future. You guys are the ones that maybe have a different approach. So I'd like to extend an invitation. We'll talk later. But uh, Rudyard, I think it's really important that this sort of um, strategy, strategery, be heard by uh, uh, people who are uh, in power and or have money. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's yeah, yeah. No, no, no complaints. No complaints. Yeah, I mean, okay. I would love to. I mean, if you... Okay. So we'll, we'll follow up with you on that. Now, 
Now, because we're talking about America's future and we're talking about young people, what I wanted to talk to you about young people, STEM, education, the education system, et cetera. You're one of those odd guys that despite our education system seems to turn seems to turn out pretty smart and pretty wise for despite right Tapa and I are the exact same age we're both 21 which you're both 21 you went to did you did you go to private school or did you go to you know regular k through 12 at a public school I went through regular k through 12 in public school right and somehow you survived that right yeah somehow and you still and you have some drive and you have some initiative and you're smart and et cetera, right? And then you're only 21, so you haven't gone to much college. How, how much university uh, work have you done? I went to Berkeley for one day. So I dropped out because if Berkeley. you drop it out for one day, you don't have to pay any more tuition. So I was like, gotcha. we make a decision. And you, get to, make and you get to say, I went to Berkeley. I have a lot oh. of friends that's, that didn't graduate. And they say, well, I went to Harvard. And I go, really? Oh, I didn't graduate, but I went to Harvard. But okay. <laughs> but here's the thing. You dropped out, out, out after one day, right? And and have landed. You're, you're doing pretty damn well. I mean, first off, the K through twelve system is jacked up beyond all recognition, and we don't need it. I mean, nobody in India says, you know, I want to go to American high school. If I could go to anywhere, you know, I want to go to a, a junior high in the Bronx. If they see the movies of the pretty girls, they might. Yeah, for the pretty girls, they might go. Okay, right, but they have Bollywood. They don't need us for that either. All right, so. Now, but they do say, let's go to K through 12. You know, I mean, so I'm sorry, let's go to, uh, to our, our undergraduate schools. Let's go to our graduate schools. They all want to go to the Ivy League schools, et cetera, right? And if we look at the systemic differences between them, one, there is some competition in higher education, right? People pay with their money, but it's also heavily subsidized. So we sell you the dream on getting a college degree, give you a lot of money that you then have to pay back, right? Which jacks up the price because anyone who took Econ 101 knows more money chasing the same number of slots at schools I mean the price goes up, right? If I'm a university president, I got people from all over the world trying to get to my Ivy League or near Ivy League school, price is going to go up. And now you're burdened with this debt. And we also encourage you to get a degree in left-handed basket weaving, right? As opposed to a STEM education or something that has jobs for it, right? So I'd like you as a young person, I, I'd like you to, to talk a little bit about this, why you decided to make the change, the, the decision you made not to continue to go through Berkeley, which is pretty damn good school, right? And people get out with pretty damn good jobs, right? But what was it that drove you to do that? And let me, I want to hear what you have to say about our current education system. And if you were king for a day, what would you do to improve it? Yeah, well, let's see. Uh, well, let me start with saying that I'm probably maybe an example that's not um, not the median because I, I was pretty, um, I, I was definitely predisposed to drop out, right? And it's definitely one thing I always wanted to do was to start a company. And, you know, now we live in an age, fortunately, where you can do that without having to, you know, build up like a pedigree over time. And, you know, I also don't particularly like the school environment, right? Like my style of learning is I like to basically hop from thing to thing and, you know, sort of just go really into depth about things I'm interested in. And I think that you need me, a Montessori university, right? You know, the Montessori uh, system where you get to pick what, Montessori school, you get to pick what you yeah. want to study every day, right? You need a Montessori university. It doesn't exist. Of how education was, sorry to interject, but it reminds you of how education mm -hmm. was done in the pre-modern world. And this was the case in China, India, Europe, everywhere, is that you would have, I, I kind of imitate this with what a faultist, where you have like a, a stage or a teacher, and then the students gather around and you just have conversations between the teacher and the student, and the teacher talks about the subject that is part of his discipline on each daily basis. And it's a conversation between the student and the teacher in which both of them learn and they establish relationships. And I have like, I think I know about 300 What If Altist fans at this point, and I have a, a network of different ones that I talk to that we learn from each other. And I think that is a much more, our industrial system is designed so that to churn out workers that can do basic tasks and it crushes creativity. I think that's part of the reason technological innovation has been in decline per capita since the 19th century. And that earlier pre-modern system is one for people like me and Tapa, because everything Tapa said about school, I identify with. I didn't like school. I, I like to study certain topics. I more of a creative person. I dropped that after a semester. But if you have a system where there's like a, a kind of a sage and then students around them, and it's a personal journey of self-discovery in which the students are incentivized to learn out of their own interest, that, that panders to the people who 
will change the world rather than the current educational system, which panders to basically establish a class of competent, not even anymore, a class of paper pushers. They used yeah, to be competent. I mean, now they're kind of competent. <laughs> yeah, yeah so we I mean, keep interrupting you, Tapa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, though, because this is like, yeah, I mean, the education system is possibly one of the most controversial aspects of like you know everyone agrees that it's wrong everyone has a different way of uh, everyone has a different solution and they're all in opposition to each other right and yeah i mean i think you know one of the things for me was at least personally um i feel like one of the problems with like i i disagree with the idea that we should be pushing the american education system both in k through 12 and in the university towards like emulating like the Asian system or whatever, right? Because that does definitely does not work either. I think it works very well at sort of shifting the uh, the mean forward a little bit for a period of time, but it completely destroys the destroys the tails, right? And it's why whenever someone's like, you know, the, all of the people who are who are used to be like, oh, China's actually ahead of the U.S. and AI research are suddenly very quiet these days after OpenAI's <laughs> GPT series. Um, but I mean, in terms of being king for a day and changing it, you know, I don't really know. I think one of the things for sure, like, you know, what I would almost start with is things that are pretty obvious is like, like low hanging fruit, right? Like starting high school, especially later in the day. Right. And that's a pretty obvious one that is pretty much just existing. The reason why we start high school at like 745 or something is because we've built it because you have the kids go to school while the parents go to work. Right. And if we can get rid of that, I think that, you know, we obviously Amen. we have pretty and old people data. like to get up early. That's the other reason. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys learn better at 10 o'clock in the morning onward, right? You, if you could study yeah. at 930 at night, you'd prefer you'd rather have a exactly. class at nine in the evening than nine in the morning, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's one where we have like nearly bulletproof evidence that, OK, we'll literally gain IQ points if we do this. And we haven't done that. Right. I think that goes to show just how much institutional inertia there is for these types of institutions, right? It's like, you know, if I tell my mom, it's like, hey, mom, we should definitely do this. And I was like, no, 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 that, no, no. Kids can't be lazier these days or something, right? But it's like, you know, that obviously is something you should do. And so, I mean, I think there's low-hanging things like that. I also think there's aspects of where it's just like, one of the things I've realized is like, you know, going outside of school as an institution to work, you know, in a relatively short period of time in, and, you know, having that contrast point is just how little a lot of the things that seem to matter a lot when you're in school really matter. And you know, you'll be like, you know, because when you're in school, you're just like, oh my God, it matters so much that I need to be in this AP class as a freshman or like as a sophomore. And then you get into the real world and you're just like, oh, most of the people I work with forgot just chain rule. And I'm like, all right. So I think that's so, one So that's thing really too. important. Very few people re recall anything they learned. They studied for the test and they learned yeah. how to pass tests. But if you ask anybody if they can solve for X at this point or the yeah. area under a curve, right? And there's no, and, and Roger and I have talked about this before. I mean, so Rene Descartes creates really calculus because he wants to figure out the right pricing for a, a keg of wine and all the wine kegs were different sizes. Okay. And so I need to uh, be able to calculate the area under a curve so I can figure out what the volume of this stupid barrel is, right? Well, that... So that's a necessary reason, but nobody else that you know that isn't in your kind of isn't doing what you're doing gives a damn about calculus at this point, and they go, "Why am I studying it now?" Yeah. Okay, now that's different though than the studying of certain kinds of principles that make you a well-rounded person and able to think, and maybe make you a good voter, make you a good person who understands policy, etc. I want you to have a well-rounded education on a lot of these things, so that as a human being, as a thinker, you have some context. But in terms of skills, maybe you should only focus on those things in terms of skills that you're going to use and might need. And why don't we fix the education system by letting you pick what that's going to be? If you want to be a tradesperson, let you do that and let that be okay to be an electrician or a welder or whatever that is. We don't let that happen because it's considered socially bad because you didn't get a white collar degree, right? Secondly, on the degree programs that we're talking about, we don't do it the way Richard described, which is let you study in a sort of a Montessori-esque way what you want to study when you want to study it, right? And we also make it out that if you get a college degree, you are done studying. You are finished. You have come out complete as opposed you've demonstrated the capability to do something. So we'll let you, we'll now let you play. 
will let you work, right? You're doing what you and Rudyard do, which I find completely different than almost every other young person I know is you are lifelong continuous learners who are interested in learning new things on your own, on your own time. And you don't have to have a coach, a teacher telling you to do your pushups. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that you're, you're exactly right. And um, that's actually one of the things that I dislike most about the, not the education system itself, but how I think society views it. It's like, if you, yeah, most people just sort of stop learning after, I mean, you see this even in some very smart people where you'll see the work that they did, let's say five or 10 years ago, and you'll see the work that they do now. And you're just like, wait a minute, they're just doing the same basic things that they like, they've done maybe two or three pieces of good work in their life. And it is good work genuinely, but they're sort of like remixing that over and over again uh, for the rest of their lives. Right. Something that trips me out actually, where of the thousand people Tapa and I collectively know through interchangeable whatever, um, most of them just care. And this is a point I've brought up several times before. Most of them just care about money and sex. And it's depressing to meet all of these people in Silicon Valley or like the, the industries you want to be as a young person in America are the industries that get you money and social clout. No one wants to be a politician. No one wants to be an intellectual. No one wants to be a general. And Everyone's like, I want to make a crypto hedge fund to save the climate. And it's if you ask these, this is something that also scares me, where people know none of the skills they ought to know to be an informed voter. America is the world's greatest superpower. We know nothing of the countries we're going to attack. And the, all the successful young Americans, they don't know anything about their place in the world. They don't know any – this is my personal bias. They don't know philosophy. They don't know history. They don't know religion. They don't know – anthropology and it's also true for Tapa's side of things where none of them can explain like it's funny with physics the the einstein universe is insane it makes no intuitive sense but it controls a fundamental level of reality but i think one out of every 20 people could explain what the fundamental world that einstein posits is yeah they could quote e equals mc squared but the notion of space-time and that space isn't empty and that mass affects space, yeah. that kind of stuff, yeah, they're not, they're not going to go down that road. And they don't need to because they're atomized. And this is the thing that you talk about all the time, Rudyard, is that people live in these little tiny worlds. They're atomized. They're separate people. They have no connection to anything else or anyone else, um, other people, systems, society, their country. All they, like you said, they want to do is they want to make money and have sex, et cetera, and be part of the cool kid club. They yes. want to be able to virtue signal and say, I saved the world through crypto, right? And 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 I go to the hip parties. That is not the great foundation for a great civilization to continue, right? So no, I'm in, with I'm that said, so with that said, we have to figure out a way of pool you kind of people together. And this is why I've been saying that Rudyard and you guys need to create your own new society. Don't know what to call it, but there needs to be a, a gathering, a watering hole for you people to be put together so that you, those of you who do share similar interests, and, and, and I don't blame any of you for wanting to make money and have sex. Go for that, right? You know, I was young once too. Great. Okay. But some of you aspire to other things. Some of you aspire to see America continue to be the strongest military, political, and economic power to make this, this country stronger, more noble, more generous, to be better. And to provide an opportunity for people like yourselves in the future, similar to the ones that I had growing up. Now, even though I grew up dirt poor, this America that I lived in, and Rudyard does a meme on this basically about, hey, yeah, you could work 10 hours and buy a car or buy, buy a TV or something like that, right? So you didn't really have it that rough, old dude. Yeah, even though I grew up, there was an opportunity if you applied yourself and you had drive and ambition, et cetera, that you could you that you could become you could achieve the American dream. And that American dream seems to be harder and harder for people to aspire to or think they can have, unless you're going to be the crypto god who creates um, some sort of AI thing and saves the whales. You know, that's and and hangs out with I'll make that a t-shirt. Yeah. And and back to your point earlier, I want to say this, Tapas, and I think you said this. Some people I like to say that some people have thirty years of experience, and some people have one year of experience lived thirty times. Like you said, they keep redoing that. They learn something, they repeat it for thirty years, but they don't have thirty different years of experience. Yeah, well, feel free to use. Yeah, no, I mean, it's all it's all open domain. So you're going to be one of the founding fathers, Tapa, of Rudyard's new society, right? (laughs) Um. 
there's a, sorry to change the topic, but there's a couple things I want to pick your brain on, Tapa. And the first sure, is yeah. you the intersection between Hinduism and physics, where lots of the principles of Newton Einstein's universe fit with what ancient Hinduism taught. I actually have not at all. My only, my only, the only useful thing I can add there is I recently made a meme about the virgin Reddit atheist versus the Chad Oppenheimer. Physics is too easy for me. I think I'll look into Hindu mythology. My, um, one of my favorite authors, Amory Duryakur, I think is the best Mm -hmm. historian of the last century. And he wrote this book comparing how Hindu philosophy, uh, says very similar things to modern physics and then if you go on the subatomic level in physics things can touch two places at the same time and then be in both or particles flicker in and out of existence or if you compress matter is constantly warping and shifting and um space and time are the same force and if you compress it together it creates a giant void destroying explosion or that the universe is billions of years old and the kind of wacky theory the author has is that the hindus had a science of meditation where they'd have soma which is a psychedelic and they'd meditate in groups and then they'd corroborate the evidence from their meditational discoveries and his theory that i've been investigating and i don't know if it's true is that through deep contemplation and meditation you can discover things that the world you wouldn't already know. And it's how the Aztecs, for example, knew the exact year their civilization would be destroyed. And they knew it would be the last surviving part. They, they were five aspects of Mesoamerican civilization, and they knew that they would be the last, and they knew they would be destroyed in 1519 by a group of people sailing in from the east. Or the, Greek, the ancient Greek pre-Socratic philosophers before science knew, figured out heliocentrism, evolution, and atom theory. And it's a rabbit hole that I don't know if it's true, but I think it's something that's really fascinating. It's pretty interesting. I've never really looked into it. Um, yeah, the, yeah. Like I said, the closest exposure I have to that is, is, that Opp- is that Oppenheimer is pretty interested in Hindu mythology because apparently he thought physics was too easy for him. So Oppenheimer and Einstein, both really in another one of those three, another one of the uh, early physicists of, the 20th century, they all studied Hinduism very deeply and religion very deeply because they thought it reflected what they discovered. So I take that further. Almost all of the religions somehow intuited through their creation myth, their yeah. story, whatever, many of them, the Big Bang. In the exactly. beginning, there was nothing. There, you know, the darkness was upon the face of the deep, etc. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the Big Bang is almost articulated in Genesis that yes. way, right? And the idea that maybe time is fluid or particular, there's a bunch of religions that say that, this, this relative notion, et cetera, the notion of infinity, all that kind of stuff comes up. And so these were people who figured out, as you said, heliocentrism. There's some people a long time ago without the tools and techniques, et cetera, that we had figured that out. And yet others who had it because they were so uh, intent on the world, you know, the universe revolving around them, were decided that the earth was the center of the universe, right? Yeah. And they had... And that was later. People before them figured out heliocentrism. So there's something intuitive and, and natural in people's uh, uh, nature for them to sort of understand these things and figure these things out. And it's it's surprising, given their lack of their lack of te- technology, but their greater skill at intuition and or yeah. uh, abstract thinking. I mean, there is um, like Young's notion of like the collective human subconscious, right? Which I always thought to be pretty fascinating where it's like every every sort of religion independently has a very specific similar set of like creation myths, things like great floods and so forth, right? Which I always found pretty fascinating. And my, my take was always that essentially psychedelics are the catalyst in, in, into peering into this collective human subconscious, if you will. Yeah, I'm told that's going to be a central part of this new society is various uh, psychedelics, et cetera. I'm too old to partake in are them, you but you guys enjoy. Are FBI watch list, David? <laughs> yeah, you, you guys can enjoy that. I mean, I'm one, of the, I'm one of these guys of the 60s that never actually smoked pot, okay? So I'm an outlier there, right? Hmm. Uh, but, uh, but, but alcohol, a little bit of that. Okay. So I'm gonna have to leave that to you guys, but I think there's something to this. And again, you guys are the future, so you'll figure it out. You'll I, report um, back to me. I've thought a lot about this. So I'll tell you about it in my next call Tapa, if you're interested. Sure. But yeah. the, um, another thing I want to throw in is that Tapa has one of the most fascinating and cool engineering ideas I've seen. Tell them about your plan for a space elevator. 
Oh, for a space elevator. Yeah. Huh. The one with Zeppelins. Oh, yeah, right. So basically, there is... So essentially, the, sp- the idea of the space elevator is essentially you have literally... Well, exactly what it sounds like, an ele- elevator, right? And you basically put things into orbit by moving them up this elevator. The problem is, of course, is we don't have any materials that are strong enough to do that, right? And what I always thought was interesting is, like, if you could theoretically make a... Because today we use helium as a lifting gas, right? And, um, you know, that works pretty well. Uh, but there's limits to how far you can... How big you can stretch these balloons. And there's uh, there's this idea of a vacuum airship, the, you know, vacuum balloon, where you literally just use evacuated... Uh, well, a vacuum. And that, theoretically, can get you floating as high as you want. But the problem is there is no way to make a vacuum airship that actually floats. <clears throat> with conventional materials but with new materials technologies um such as cellular materials like these metamaterials um as well as these isogrid type structures there's theoretically a way you could actually make vacuum airships that float and well they're not terribly practical and this space elevator idea probably isn't terribly practical either but i always thought it'd be fun if you could essentially use that principle to essentially actually float your way into a space elevator without needing to actually you know, hang like a string of like carbon nanotubes or something. Yeah, that that gets you most of the way there, right? Yeah. The balloon gets you help most of the way there without having to be tethered. Well, I think the idea behind this is, well, I didn't think it through super well, obviously, but essentially I think the idea is that you can go as far up as you want, essentially, like up, up to actually into like VLEO or something. Low Earth orbit. You put like okay. 10 Zeppelins on top of each other. And through that, you can have a space elevator without the material that could tether an exact, yep. the exact thing. And I, I believe a lot in space elevators because they would, man, I'd love to have Tapa talk more about this because one of his specialities is space, but mankind's future is in the space. There is an outer space. There's no doubt about that. And it's dangerous mm-hmm and harmful for us to not go into space because of the existential risks of Earth. But also, if we could build a space elevator, it will make the cost of going into space at least one hundredth of what it currently is. Yeah, I mean, space is an area that, you know, similarly I feel very strongly about. Um, You know, I think one of the things is there's very few things in my life that have really elicited a very deep emotional reaction in me, and one of those is the Apollo Space Program. Um, and so, yeah, I've always thought that at some point in my life, I'll probably, I might end up working on some sort of space propulsion project. And particularly to me, what's interesting is these non-rocket space launch techniques, right? These technologies that can basically go from rockets, which are great, but you know, you're probably not taking a vacation on a rocket because A, you're very likely to die and B, it's very expensive. And, you know, can we take that and turn it into something that, you know, some sort of revolutionary non-rocket propulsion approach? that breaks the tyranny of the rocket equation so that, yeah, costs come down dramatically. It's super safe because you have so much, you know, your margins in a rocket are like 0.2%, but your margins in a non-rocket space launch technique could be and should be much higher. And yeah, and that we could actually feasibly do things like mine asteroids and, you know, collect helium for fuel for fusion reactors from helium-4 from the surface of the moon and things like that, right? It's like, It'd be cool if what if one day in the future it's like you know the annoying Instagram wedding photos are taken on the moon instead of in, in Bali or something. Get a selfie on the moon. You've said yeah. That. So we do host our we host our next Space Innovation Summit on July 11th in DC at the National Press Club, and we're honoring the Space Force. We're honoring General um, uh, Raymond, who was the first CSO of the Space Force. General Hyten, who was the Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. We give an award in his name, and we're honoring the entire Space Force. And so this is a bit of a teaser for. Rudyard's listeners, et cetera. We stream this and maybe we could, we should talk to you about, you're maybe hosting a discussion during that space innovation summit, uh, which will be streamed to over a hundred thousand people. We'd love to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think it'd be great for you. I think it'd be great for you to do Tapa. And um, I actually know the guy who formed the space force, uh, Mark D. Mark Antonio. He's an absolutely wonderful person. And um, um, you've said before Tapa that, you think we'll experience a massive revolution in space technology over the next couple decades that'll lower the cost to one tenth of what it currently is. And when I get back, I'd love to hear what your what your ideas in that are. So yeah, um, Tapa. Every year, a couple times a year, we put on space events, mm-hmm. and we invite the DoD, people in the Space Force, NASA, 
people with small firms, investors, uh, in particular people, in, uh, investors, um, I'm doing a thing on investing in space and commercialization and, and the exploration of space. And we have a, a, bit, a podcast called Space Talks with Z. I have a friend named Z, um, Zahir Ali, he was with NASA. And so he might, you might, might have him come and have you, have you speak on the Space Talks with Z podcast with him about what you're interested in doing, et cetera. Would love to, yeah. So we just try, we just try to provide a forum for people smarter than us to talk about these kinds of important issues. And what I typically say to somebody, if you would give me a wish list of somebody you'd like to have a conversation with, like if it was Gandhi or Elvis or Jesus or whatever, you give me that thing. And my little talent is calling people and say, hey, do you want to come talk? Sure, and would love to, yeah. Say yes. Yeah, I mean, for would love to. It's, it's been a while, but I've still, I'm still quite interested in being propulsion at some point in, in the future. Okay. Um, right well, it could be about the chip manufacturing because we have something called the Cyberland Air, Sea, and Space Summit. It spells the word class because mm -hmm. it's the military and they love acronyms, right? So we have our class and it's very broad, joint domain stuff, anything from Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, you know, every domain. And getting the commercial world to work with the uh, national security sector public sector, um, et cetera, and invest in those things is something we try to foster. So this idea about, I mean, I, I would categorize it as being, um, as, as chip independence, uh, you know, uh, being, um, you know, independent from Taiwan and China. Uh, if you wanted to host a discussion on that and what it takes, especially in terms of investors, getting investors who do invest in that for them to come talk about their thesis as to why they would be willing to invest in that. Of course, hopefully you would get to know them and they might decide, oh, I need to invest in Tapa's business, right? Yeah, I mean, would love to. And yeah, hopefully a few of those would think that that Vince is interesting. Yeah. So I call it the wish list. You think of your wish list of folks that um, you'd like to have that conversation with. We'll see if we can broker an introduction and maybe you moderate a discussion amongst those people and, of course, get to know them. Cool. Sounds perfect. So, All right. Yeah. So we're back, right? And uh, where where do we leave things off, uh, uh, Roger? Space revolution. Right. Space revolution, so right. You... Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things here, right? For one, I think we're like, what's happened with generally with SpaceX is that what used to be an area where it's like if in 2000 you walked into the, to a VC fund's office and you said, hey, I have a rocket company or a space company, you would have gone laughed out. Like, you don't even, like, you would have opened the first title slide, you would have gone laughed out of the room, right? And now it's a hot area with a lot of investment and perhaps more interestingly, a lot of young people are interested in the space, right? And they're interested in the space seriously. They see it as something that can be possible as an area to innovate in. And so people are, you know, and I think we've seen, you know, there's the, I would say the more conventional aspects like, you know, rockets and making rockets cheaper, safer, more reusable, et cetera. Uh, but we're also seeing some really interesting stuff outside of that, right? So we've seen spin launch. Um, we've seen this whole, st the smaller, much smaller sector, but it does exist. Uh, these non-rocket space launch companies, right? Like such as Longshot, um, you know, using catapults, using guns and various methods to get, uh, to get things into space. And if you do so, you, know, you break the rocket equation. It's incredible. And these technologies ho host the potential to have 100x reductions, like what we're just talking about, in cost and, you know, potentially to increase a launch cadence where today, if you want to do a rocket launch, that's a multi-month endivore to get a booking, to make sure the weather is good, you know, to set up the rocket, et cetera, versus in the future. You know, ideally, I've got a satellite, boom, I send it in and, you know, it gets launched out the next day or even in the next hour, right? And that is pretty revolutionary. And these technologies are still very nascent, of course, right? Like, you know, every non-rocket, every like gun-based technique has a lot of, you know, has its associated challenges with heating and shockwaves and the atmosphere and so forth, but they're not impossible, right? And I think this is what I think a lot of people miss where, um, you know, I'm convinced that if we'd never gone to the moon, that today, if someone asked a question on like Twitter or like Quora or something, like, would it be possible for people to go into the moon? A lot of people would be like, ah, that's like, it's a cute idea, but here's why that's impossible as a, an experienced engineer or something, right? And so many of these problems, while difficult or not, are insurmountable. And there are actually people for the first time, I think, in decades making a real shot at solving them. And if we do, then yeah, we can actually see like orders of magnitude cost reductions in space launch. And yeah, that is a revolution, right? Like you can actually start to do things like profitably mine asteroids with that. 
Well, I don't have too much more. I'm fascinated by what you're doing. I'm impressed with you as a young man, 21 years old, like Rudyard. We got to put more of you guys together, et cetera, um, and have that. Uh, and you guys leverage each other's energy, uh, interests, enthusiasm, uh, insight, et cetera. Um, I'm kind of an old curmudgeon with my America's Future series thing that was started because I kept thinking America's um, as as a country is going to de-evolve and eventually no longer be the dominant society or country in the world, right? Every time I talk to Rudyard, he points out something I learned from him that makes me think that I'm not right, that maybe there is uh, America has some legs, that there are fundamental systemic reasons why America uh, and this generation in particular are, um, are, are a positive and I should be much more optimistic about the future of America. And every time I talk to someone like you, Tapa, I, I become more determined I need to turn off America's Future Series because we don't need it because America is going to last forever. You know? <laughs> Well, I'm happy to happy to be a source of optimism. <laughs> yeah, you are. Yeah, you're you're very encouraging uh, uh, to a guy like me. So, uh, Roger, would you like to close with anything? Anything that you'd like to Actually, to, to wrap us up with? There is one more question I have for Tapa. Um, what do you think about the revolutions in AI that are going on right now? Ah, hmm. yeah. Well, so my take on this is basically that it is going to be pretty revolutionary. In the sense where it's like, you know, these, some of these capabilities are truly amazing, right? And I have friends who've used like ChatGPT to like write. Uh, I have a friend who runs a LiDAR company and he used ChatGPT to uh, write up a Python script to debug the Ethernet ports. And he's like, it actually worked. It's like crazy, right? And so this some of this capability is ridiculous. So it's amazing. Um, but it's probably also not AGI and it's probably not going to kill us all in the same way that SF, you know, parts of SF seem to think. And... You know, I think that what we'll see is probably a, I think if you look at the entire productivity gain in overall, you know, in people from the start of the computer revolution to the end of it, we're about to see that big of a gain in productivity, if not more, um, with the AI revolution, right? Like, it's pretty reasonable to say, in my view, that the productivity of white collar employees will be 10x with once the new generation of AI-based tools truly comes online, right? Like, not so much shoving existing AI techniques ham-fisted into existing tools, but rather saying, okay, if I have a highly unreliable but very powerful semantic engine around all data ever in existence, what can I do with that? And if you can build tools and frameworks and processes around it, I think you can get massive productivity improvements, right? The question is then, though, is will that lead to overall quality of life and GDP improvements or, you know, are 10x more productive lawyers actually not a good thing for society? So I think that'll be yeah. a more interesting question. But, you know, in something that, you know, I've thought about personally is that if we built chip design tools like electronic design automation, CAD tools for chips from the ground up and rebuilt them with AI, I'm very confident we could see a 10x increase in productivity for chip design, right? Like for aspects like physical design, verification, Ooh. and so forth, which is crazy, right? It's like that is a huge leap in productivity that, you know, just we can do, you know? And that's something that I think, um, you know, people are really underestimating how big of a shift that will be in the next five to 10 years. And I think, you know, I sort of call myself an AI moderate in the sense that, yeah, people are like, oh, this is just like, you know, some bullshit with chatbots. And this is nothing. And then you have people who are like, this is AGI, the dawn of the end of humanity. And I'm like, no, it's pretty revolutionary, but it's also like not going to kill us all. And yeah, so that's where I lie. And that's where I think there'll be a lot of impact, right? I think we're about to see a new generation of AI enabled companies. Like, you know, as I was telling a friend of mine a few months back, it's like you, you basically have a license to print money over the next five to 10 years. If you understand these to even a reasonable extent, because what you're basically going to solve in my view, is that you have these foundation models from like OpenAI or Anthropic, and they have, you know, they're giant models trained on all the data in existence, basically, that's publicly available. But the really interesting thing is going to be, how do you train these models on data that's not publicly available, right? Private data. And the problem that you have to solve then as an entrepreneur in these areas is that no one firm has enough data to train these giant models, right? So to give sort of a contrived example, if you wanted to predict, for instance, um, the where the location of fish are in the sea, and pr- accurately predicting that even by a slight amount can be the big difference between a successful fishing fleet and an unsuccessful fishing fleet, 
because of the narrow margin. And you could basically go in there and now say, okay, I'm actually going to train a giant transformer to do this. But no one fleet, no one company has that much data, right? So you need to find a way to somehow get a bunch of companies to agree. Maybe you could do the brute force strategy and you do a private equity type strategy where you roll up a bunch of these companies, take their data, combine them into this you know, super company with this massive advantage. Um, or maybe you do something more clever, right? Maybe you kickstart the process somehow. Uh, regardless, you know, that I think is the opportunity for entrepreneurs to be very clever about how to go about the acquisition of the acquisition of gigantic amounts of private, uh, basically private proprietary data. And yeah, basically yeah. build massive companies based on that. The, um, my speciality is always society because that's what I study. And my biggest worry with AI is just social instability because the internet revolution has pushed our society to the brink of, in, it's currently collapsing. And I worry that another big change with AI might just push us over the edge where we don't, the amount of white collar jobs we would have would probably collapse because a single person can do the work of a hundred. And the other point is that the white collar workers are kind of our ruling class. And I could see them illegalizing AI to keep their jobs around. Once, when, it, when it's factory workers or truckers who are getting given the boot for their jobs, they don't have as much power. But when you get to lawyers, most American presidents are lawyers. Well said. So we happen to use ChatGPT with the virtual assistants that we have that write some content for us. And a lot of them are in the Philippines. And English is supposedly their, their native language, but we're always, we were always having to check that, et cetera. Now someone in the Philippines is as just as good a writer as somebody in Silicon Valley, right? And the skill set there is figuring out how to use G chat GPT or other things like that, how to do the queries, et cetera, and then how to evaluate that and have it do it again, massage it, et cetera, right? What's interesting about that to me is it is in some ways perhaps a, 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 a fix for our education problem because chat GPT will show people what real language should look like. This is how good, this is how you could write. I know you can't write this well yourself currently, but oh, at least seeing someone write something well, say chat GPT writing at a higher level, grade level of writing may help somebody who's writing at the eighth grade level understand what it's right to, 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 to write at the, as a senior in high school or better, right? So it actually may teach us how to write better, which is interesting, or think better, et cetera, or assess better. Because it isn't just writing. I, I get that. It isn't just writing. But that's one example. I'm seeing it work right now, helping people, this lower, this, this, this lower socioeconomic class in the third world do the job, which Rudyard brings up, is the sort of the ruling class, the the uh, the intelligence the intelligentsia et cetera that does all of this writing, they're displacing them to where we end up looking like Wall-E and everybody's laying on some floating couch with a Slurpee in their hand and they can't not only fix the ship they can't even write the code to fix the ship I don't know but uh, it'll be interesting and it is absolutely a revolution and in a way it's a good thing we just have to find something productive to do with the people that don't do that any longer. What do we do with the truck drivers where when trucks are self-driving? That's 3% of our population. What do we do with the distribution workers, which are also roughly 3% of our population, when goods are shipped directly to your door and bypass a distribution center, when there are no distribution centers in the world, when Amazon doesn't have DCs, the manufacturer makes it, it goes straight to your house, there's no truck driver, and there's no distribution center worker. That's 6% of our population. What do we do with the 10 or 20% of people who are doing sort of basic writing? Watson, uh, Watson's IBM Watson got rid of state farms. I think it was state farms. They got rid of about 10% of their lawyers who were adjudicating, um, you know, cases and, 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 and claims because Watson is doing it for them. So if you're a low level, junior level attorney, we don't need you. It's well, what, what do we do with you? In some ways, then I need to make a video about this. I'm worried for modern civilization that we're straddling this edge with technology of from the cycles of history I study, I worry we're going to fall into a dark age in the future based off because dark ages happen when your society is pushed to a threshold of innovation where its social structure can't keep up. And you saw this, the bronze age collapse, the fall of the Roman empire, where societies reached a threshold that they couldn't sustain. Their social structure broke apart. It goes down to a lower level. You spend a thousand years rebuilding on that lower level to push it up again. And I worry the changes with technology are causing something like that. And that's the reason people aren't having kids. It's the reason everyone's depressed. It's because 
the social models we have are not adapted for the technological level. And so I worry between this model, there were, what we're going to happen is we're either going to fall into a dark age or we genetically engineer people to deal with the new situations we have where we end up the thing that really worries me. And I work Kaczynski talked about this is we'll end up in a society where we genetically engineer people to be cattle or sheep. And there basically we kill the human race's soul to survive in a technological society. And I would take a dark age over that. We'll end on the on that happy topic. note. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we'll end that, on that. Happy to, to to be a video, huh? Yeah, exactly. Coming out soon. Well, um, okay, coming soon. Any final statements, Tapa? Yeah. Well, let's see. Well, I, I I guess I should invoke the quote that final last words are for people who haven't said enough in their lives. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, but no, overall, I would say that despite the ending of that note, I'm still pretty optimistic for the world. <laughs> like, um, you know, I think that, yep. I mean, like I said, many of the problems that we're facing today have been faced in history and some, well, maybe not exactly, but they certainly rhymes in some way. Right. So overall, I'm a very optimistic person. I'm known as the annoying optimist amongst my friends, especially my engineering friends. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, overall, I guess a message of optimism that problems can be solved and, yeah, even if they're hard, they will be solved, yeah, eventually. As long as people like you are having these discussions in an open way where they can have nuanced conversations and not beat each other up over it, then, yeah, there, there, there is hope. Yeah, well, there's always hope. All right, well, thanks for having me, Rudger. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Tom, for coming you. on. It was a pleasure. Likewise, man. All right. Bye for now. Cool. See ya.